Hello and welcome to The Coping Toolbox, a child psychology podcast hosted by clinical psychologists Dr. Layla Dan Osman, Dr. Mary Simray McDonald, and Dr. Jennifer Vrend. We hope that this podcast helps parents, children, and teens learn new coping skills in dealing with their stress and anxiety and to help strengthen relationships in their lives. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Coping Toolbox. I'm Dr. Mary Simmering McDonald, and I have the great pleasure of being joined today by Dr. Wendy Craig, who will be sharing her expertise on the topic of bullying. Dr. Craig is a leading international scientist and expert on bullying prevention and the promotion of healthy relationships. As the co-founder and scientific co-director of PrevNet, or Promoting Relationships and Eliminating Violence Network, she has transformed our understanding of bullying and effectively translated the science into evidence-based practice, intervention, and policy, and has had a profound influence on communities across Canada. Dr. Craig has been recognized with awards, including an Investigator Award from CIHR, the Canadian Psychological Association Award for Distinguished Contributions to Community Service, the Queen's Excellence in Research Prize, Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Medal, and the Social Science and Humanities Research Council Impact Partnership Award. She is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and was appointed to the Order of Canada in 2018 in recognition of her work on bullying, victimization, and knowledge mobilization. She is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Queen's University. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Craig. I want to thank you so very much for joining me today and, you know, for sharing your work and your knowledge with our listeners. Well, thank you for having me. And it's a pleasure to be here and so important, the work that you do and to share with uh, the people who are listening what we know about bullying. Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate it very much. And the organization that you are a part of, PrevNet, it's such an incredible organization. It provides, you know, fantastic information regarding bullying and healthy relationships. And I just wondered if you could really quickly share a little with us about what PrevNet is um, and what you do as an organization. Sure, I'd love to. So, I started PrevNet with Deborah Pepler uh, in 2006, so a very long time ago. And we really started it because we realized that across the country, everybody was reinventing the wheels in the sense of they were designing the same kinds of information and education packages for to, to address bullying and victimization in schools. And so what we wanted to do was bring together researchers and bring together national organizations and government that work with children and youth everywhere they live, learn, work, and play, and get the resources into their hands that were evidence-based. But more importantly, we wanted to know what were the questions that they were facing in their organizations and what information did they need the researchers to do to answer some of their really important daily uh, questions. So it was all about bringing research to practice and practice to research to address bullying in Canada in an empirical scientific way. 
That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. And there's so much to cover on the topic of bullying. And it's really an important topic for so many reasons. Um, I thought it might be helpful for our listeners to start out by asking if you can just briefly talk about what bullying is, and how it's different than teasing. You know what, that's a really important question. And probably the number one question I get asked from educators all the time. And I think there are sort of core components that differentiate these things. So bullying is at the core about a power imbalance. So that is the child who's doing the bullying has more power and uses that power to harm and hurt another individual who's being victimized. So it's about a power imbalance. It's about, it's a repeated event. It's not a one-off. That is, I target that specific child and, and I create probably the most destructive kind of relationship that we can all imagine that's based on, on power and aggression, but it's about a relationship. And the last piece is the impact. You know, from a child's rights perspective, we always have to think about what the impact is on the child who's being victimized. And there are huge negative psycho, psychological as well as academic and social and health impacts of being bullied. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that. So it's that repeated pattern. So something that's happening, um, you know, not just a one off, something that's happening more than once. Um, there's that power element to it, that power imbalance. And we also see that there are these really negative consequences for the individuals involved. Um, And I think that's really helpful because in practice, you know, in our clinical work, I sometimes hear parents say things like, oh, it's just no big deal. It happens all the time. Kids are just being kids. Let's, you know, just let them figure it out on their own, that sort of thing. And, you know, through your work, um, we realize that this is simply Simply not true, and that bullying does create risk for both the victim and the aggressor. Um, would you be able to speak about why bullying is such a big problem and is actually a danger both to the victim and to the aggressor as well? Yeah, I think that's that. It, it has to do with that repeated nature that you were just talking about. So that and and the power imbalance. That's why we need adults to step in to write that power imbalance. Mm-hmm. But what we've come to learn through many different uh, researchers across the world is that there are long-term consequences associated with both perpetrating the bullying and being victimized by it. So for example, kids who have been repeatedly victimized um, by bullying, they're at higher risk for substance use, depression, anxiety. Uh, Girls are at a higher risk for eating disorders. Um, They're at risk for uh, not finishing school or not doing as well in school. So there are really long-term kinds of patterns that get laid down. The other thing that's really significant is that the kids who are victimized tend to, if it recurs over time, tend to get victimized in other relationships. So as they develop, they get victimized in their romantic relationship. They get victimized in their marital relationship. So it's really laying down a pattern of interactions that's very harmful throughout one's lifespan. And the same for the child who's bullying others. They're at risk for things like uh, Uh, criminal activity, uh, substance use. Um, They also are at risk for things like depression and anxiety. So we need to support both youth, the youth who are perpetrating the the bullying as well as the youth who are being victimized because for all of them, there are health risks and there are psychological mental health risks as well as there are academic and social risks. 
Yeah, so this isn't a minor thing. There are some pretty significant challenges that can come up for both parties involved. And yeah, that pattern of relationships and what it feels like being in a relationship and what the expectations are. So how that can impact their functioning going forward. Um, And you just talked about the importance of adult intervention in bullying, that this is one of the ways that we can right the power imbalance. Um, And I really appreciate that being laid out in such a concrete way, because again, in practice, I often see parents who are unsure about whether they should be stepping in or if this is something where they should just step back and let their kids work it out themselves. Um, Do you have any more thoughts about why adults play a key role in interrupting this cycle? Yeah, absolutely. And it it sort of relates to the question that you asked me at the beginning about how is bullying different from teasing? And, you know, teasing is about an equal relationship. It's reciprocated. You and I are equal in that relationship. Teasing has an element of fun to it, that it's it's humorous, although it can slip into negative, especially we've seen that probably among siblings, if we know that. Um, and so, you know, th- that there's, and there's no power imbalance. So, but in bullying, there's a power imbalance and, and with each subsequent interaction, that power imbalance becomes stronger and stronger. And so we need adults to step in and write that power imbalance. They have to step in on behalf and support the child who's being victimized to, to help address that power imbalance. Um, and it's absolutely critical. I mean, there's so many roles that, that adults play um, in children's life. So for example, parents can role model about how to address bullying. Um, they, can, they can role model healthy relationships. They can role model um, em- uh, emotional regulation, how to regulate your, your emotions when you're feeling angry or when you're feeling victimized. They can role model coping strategies um, how to cope with stress and, and, and how to deal with it. And they can role model disclosures. So, you know, adults play a really critical role. Yes. And I'm thinking as you're talking that these are the types of things that parents can be doing with their kids from a really young age um, before anything has occurred, right? Where they can kind of open up these conversations and start to practice. I also find that it provides the opportunity to talk to kids about some pretty concrete sorts of ideas. You know, step one, we try to work it out with a friend, for example, or or we tell the person to stop. I don't like that. Um, You know, step two, maybe trying to ignore. Step three, talking to a teacher where it can be pretty concrete in terms of the suggestions. But I, I hear from you that when there is that power imbalance and it is an experience of bullying, it's simply the type of problem that's too big for kiddos to work out on their own. And even though there are some things that they can do, um, they really need that adult support to help them address it and get through it. Absolutely. And, you know, I I just want to say you've highlighted something really important. I often get asked, um, you know, about cyberbullying in particular, like, is there an app or something? And, and the, the answer I always have is there is no app to address bullying. It's all about relationships and that building that healthy, trusting, caring, supportive, unconditional, loving relationship with your child starts from the moment they enter this world. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not through, it's not through one big action that we can prevent bullying, but it's through those many, many moment to moment interactions that we have with our ch- child 
throughout development that that make them feel safe and loved and supported and create that climate where they can come to us and disclose those things. Yes, absolutely. So starting from a really young age and just setting the stage for what a healthy relationship feels like and looks like, um, giving them that confidence also. I think when we have these secure, um, loving and loving relationships that also have boundaries, you know, that sort of authoritative kind of relationship, um, it really gives them confidence to grow and to build within that. We also know that there are many cases where students are unlikely to talk about bullying or to report bullying to their parents. And this is, of course, really problematic considering how important adult intervention is in stopping bullying. Do you have any ideas about why children might find this so difficult to talk about? There, there are a lot of reasons why young people don't disclose to adults. And, and, and most of them are things that we need to help them overcome or, or we can address. So one of the big things that they don't is they don't believe that adults are going to be effective in dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we as adults, you know, coming back to what we were just talking about, need to listen and need to be responsive and need to hear our child when they tell us these things. Um, and so we, we need to not react with just deal with it yourself, but we need to be there with them and help them problem solve and address it. The other main reason that they don't tell is that they fear that it will get worse, that if adults get involved, it's going to escalate and become more serious over time. And our research really clearly shows that if a child discloses to an adult, you know, a year later, that child is experiencing 50% less victimization. So telling an adult works, and that's a really important message to send to children. The other piece is it's about shame. I should have been able to, I should handle it myself. I should have been able to deal with it. So it's about this internalized sense of um, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I can't deal with it. So I I can't possibly share that even with those that I love and and care deeply um, about. Um, The other piece is that they're much more likely to go to their peer group and tell their peers what's happening to them and peers know. And so that piece is that not only do we have to give adults and those are all adults in children's lives, you know, parents, aunts, uncles, caretakers, educators, you know, community leaders, like girl guide leaders, we need to give them all the tools about how to be ready and how to respond and be open to youth disclosing. Because some adults, frankly, don't take that information and and react in the way that we would hope that they would. So we need to make sure they have the skills and the ability to, to be responsive when children disclose. Yeah, absolutely. And even looking at it from the help-seeking side of things, um, the help-seeking research shows that if somebody works up the courage to go and seek help, and then they have a negative experience, um, they're less likely to do so again in the future, right? So really important to respond in that very attentive way, taking it seriously. And I love what you said that, you know, the research shows that very concretely adult intervention does work and telling a parent really does help. And this makes me think again about having these conversations openly from an early stage, an early age, um, before any of these experiences come up so that hopefully children know that that's a safe place to share and that they're, the adults in their li- life are ready and willing to, to listen to them. And I also think it's important to let children and youth know that if the adult that you do tell doesn't respond in a way that you find helpful, tell another adult. Yeah. 
talking to adults till you find that adult that's going to support you because you need that adult support to write that power and balance. Yeah. Yeah. So keep going, keep going until you find someone who's going to help you with it. The other thing too, that I often talk to parents about in terms of social connections and relationships is just trying to expand the opportunities for development of those relationships. So um, I'm wondering if you might be able to talk a little bit about that, just how we can support our children in making connections, um, in joining new groups at school or other activities. Yeah, I think that's really important. And and a risk factor for being victimized by bullying is, is kids who are socially isolated or kids who don't belong to a peer group. So the majority of kids have a best friend Um, But the kids who are the most at risk for being victimized are those who don't belong to that larger peer group. So we as adults can play a really important role. And Deborah Pepler talks about being a social architect. (laughs) And and what that basically means is that when our children are young, we can actually create social opportunity and social interactions that are going to promote those healthy relationships. So in other words, invite children into your home so that you can monitor and support your child's social interaction. I always said, thought that I wanted my house to be the coolest house on the block so that I could have all of my daughter's friends in the house and see what those interactions look like. Um, the other thing is help them join the clubs. Identi- every child has strengths and interests, and let's celebrate those strengths and create opportunity for, for children to, to, to uh, play out those strengths, whether it be joining girl guides, whether it be in swimming, whether it be a chess club, whether it be reading, let's find those opportunities to do that. Um, and the third piece is work with the teacher. Yeah, The teacher will be able to tell you a lot about the social dynamics of the classroom. And so maybe help you identify kids in that classroom and other students who are supportive of your child so that you could invite them in to your home and create those play dates and those opportunities. So always look for opportunities to connect your child. Always monitor those interactions to ensure that they're healthy and your child's not being victimized, but rather being supported and cared for in a positive way. Um, and then always check in with your child to ensure that those, those new social connections are working out and are, are meeting their needs. So not putting all of the social eggs in the school basket, so to speak, right? And providing them with other opportunities to highlight their strengths, feel confident, develop relationships maybe with others that they have things in common with, and then the monitoring and, you know, ensuring that they're having healthy interactions. Um, Knowing that kids and youth have a hard time coming forward sometimes, that's a pretty scary thing, you know, considering that we want to be involved. We as adults want to be involved if things are going on that aren't healthy in their relationships. What should we be watching for as far as signs that might indicate kids are being bullied? So this is going to sound like a real academic answer, but uh, I'm going to say, parents, you know your child best. Yeah. And, And the big telltale sign is your child's not acting as they normally do. So if your child is outgoing, suddenly they're more withdrawn. If your child is usually funny and humorous, suddenly they're not being as funny and humorous as they are. What you can also find is they tend to be more withdrawn. They tend to be a bit more obsessed with their social media if they're older, because they're probably checking and making sure everything is okay. Um, They might be more more sort of depressed. Uh, Often parents report that that children are more reactive, like everybody's picking on me back off. Mm -hmm. Um, You might see a drop in school. 
Um, a big sign for younger children is there's a reluctance to go to school. That's where the, the bullying is taking place. So they have a school reluctance um, and, and don't want to attend school. And then you might also find that they have a lot more health issues, that they might have headaches, uh, you know, and stomach aches. You know, I know my daughter had some challenging issues in grade seven, and all of a sudden we had stomach issues that didn't seem to have an underlying health cause, but were really related to the social dynamics. And that is really common. Absolutely. And especially in younger kids, too, who don't always have the words to express, you know, what anxiety is or what their worries are. Um, We get those somatic complaints. Now, if parents do get a report from their child or youth about bullying, what next steps should they take? So they're attentive, they're listening well. What's next? Well, the first thing I always say is take a big breath, mama bear and papa bear and any caretaker, you know, because what we tend to want to do is make sure the world, the world is safe for our child. And of course, it's upsetting and it's hard to hear, but we have to be open and we have to listen. And sometimes maybe problem solving isn't, you know, right away isn't the solution. What we want to do is make sure we don't victimize our child in that moment that they're disclosing. So we want to make sure our next steps, we can have some consent with them about what we want to do with it and how we want to go forward. Um, And ideally, what we want to get their consent is to go to the school. Schools are experts. They are concerned about this problem as parents, and they certainly don't want to have bullying and, and students experiencing that. So partnership with the school, go to the school, tell them your story. And, you know, if your child's willing, take your child with them, they may or may not, but listen to them, whatever they want, then you need to follow their lead and make a plan um, to address the bullying. And, you know, some of the advice I always give parents is I always say, you know, these are the questions that I ask the school, what happened? What did you do about it? And what are you going to do tomorrow to make sure that my child uh, is, is not being bullied. And then I'm get, is it okay if I give you a call a week from now just to check in and make sure that things are going well? And the last really important question is, and how can I support the efforts that you're doing at school to support my child at home? Yeah. It's a partnership. What you don't want to do is call the parents of the child who's being bullied, who's doing the bullying, because you know what? It's a hard moment and we're really emotional and we don't want to create a negative interaction at the parent level you know, let's let a third party who's neutral deal with it, who has lots of experience. So go to the school, work through the school, and they can address uh, the child who's doing the bullying and the child who's being victimized. That's excellent. Yeah, I like that idea of the partnership to working together to try to resolve this and recognizing that we're on the same team, right? We're on the same team as the school. Now, can these relationships um, that have had incidents of bullying Is there a possibility for those relationships to be repaired at any point? Absolutely. You know, like bullying happens for lots of different reasons. I mean, sometimes it's a longstanding issue, but sometimes it's just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sometimes it's just wearing the wrong thing or saying the wrong comment on a day. And I think, yes, they absolutely can be repaired. And that's part of the work that needs to be done. When bullying happens, we want the child who's perpetrating the bullying to get the support that they need. So maybe they need help regulating their emotions. And, and we want them also to repair the relationship, take responsibility for their actions, apologize for their actions, make amends for their, their actions, and then help them move forward. 
if it happens again, or if it becomes reoccurrent, then absolutely you want to keep them apart. But, you know, children are learning how to develop relationships. And part of developing relationships is we got to repair, we got to come together, and we have to see if there's a way for us to move forward. It may not be as intimate a friendship as it was, or it may not be as frequent spending time with one another, but that there's always room always, always room for children to respect one another and coexist. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to highlight that, you know, there's work to be done with the perpetrator as well, and that there's opportunity for that individual to grow from the experience and to improve and for the relationship to be repaired. And, you know, I have um, a six-year-old and I often talk to him about friends still learning to be kind or or that kind of language right that you know so and so still learning to be kind if that's not a good interaction for you then that's okay you don't have to play with with that person but instead of saying you know so and so is a terrible person or or labeling them yeah and and, and i think that's exactly right and a really important message is that we, we, we don't have to hang out with people, but we always have to respect others. And we have to make sure that we bring our authentic and integrity to our interactions. Now, we've obviously been experiencing um, a really challenging time in this past little while with the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact on kids and teens socially has been great. Um, I wondered if you might be able to speak about some of the unique challenges or the additional challenges that children are facing socially now as a result of this pandemic. I think there are a couple of really important things and we've been doing some research on this and, you know, it's not surprising. What do you find is kids are spending more time at home because of different kinds of orders of across the country during this health pandemic. Yeah. They're spending more time with their, their, their family, less time with their friends and the friends that they may get to spend time with are limited. And so they have to make choices about who they can see during this pandemic and how much time they can spend with them due to health and public health kinds of issues. And so what's happened is one, kids are, their their friendship groups have decreased, who they're hanging out with, how they're contacting um, is is much smaller. And then the other piece that's happened is they move some of their friendships online. Mm -hmm. And so they're spending more time online and understandably connecting with others. And they're spending more time with their family. So what kids are reporting is more time with, with, with siblings, more positive and negative moments and interactions and, uh, with their, their siblings, less time with their friends. And those kids who are experiencing lots of changes in their friendship are the kids that aren't doing as well. So the kids who are losing friends, the kids who are not having as much contact with their friends, they're feeling more socially isolated. And so I think and now that if we think about our con- current context in, in Ontario, when kids are now back in school and they're, they're, they're relearning how to establish those patterns. And so above all, we really, as adults in their lives, need to support them and really need to help them engage in these healthy relationships um, again and establish those relationships in a face-to-face context and with appropriate and positive social behaviors. If you look at it, it was surprising. Cyberbullying did not increase over the pandemic. It stayed relatively stable. Um, so that's the good news. And face-to-face bullying went way down because kids didn't have that opportunity to interact. But that that really also highlights how much they need our support in now re-entering that world. Yeah, yeah, it feels new for them again. And I 
heard from a lot of um, clients during this pandemic period, the thing they talked about missing so very much is seeing the people that you're not close with, but you're kind of like acquaintances and you say, hey, how's it going? And, you know, oh, this, what did you do this weekend? That sort of thing. But you wouldn't text them or contact them over social media necessarily. So I think just re-engaging in those kinds of interactions can feel tricky, right? When we've been out of the loop for a while. Absolutely. Now, something that is very concerning is that research indicates that racial bullying does occur among children, especially in elementary school, and ethnic minority youth are more likely than majority youth to experience racial bullying here in Canada. I was wondering if you'd be able to speak to us about racial bullying and in particular what additional challenges have been brought about again by the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, and, and this is a really challenging and hard area. And unfortunately, uh, the kids who are, are from Asian um, backgrounds are having much higher rates of being bullied and being victimized. And the content of that bullying and victimization is, is about COVID. And so the kinds of things, you know, if we look to the North and, and the racist kind of comments that were said by leaders have now translated down into children's everyday interactions. And, yeah. and we really need to work with children and youth to unpack that and, and you know, make them, under, you know, help them come to an understanding that this is about stereotyping. This is not about responsibility that everybody deserves to be um, included. And one of the things that happens is when that kind of bias happens in a peer group, you start to form in groups and out groups. So as educators in particular, we need to be aware of the, the, the dynamics in the classroom and understand the group dynamics of in-groups and out-groups and make sure that we actively engage in those social architecture kinds of techniques to ensure that we're mixing up those groups. And we're, so we're not letting children pick their own groups. We're actually, ensure, we're, we're orchestrating who's in what group and, and we're, we're thinking very thoughtfully about who we can pair together, that can we pair a highly popular child with someone who maybe be at risk for bullying um, and put them together. And then we also need to just address that stereotypes and bias and how that influences our social interactions and the way we behave. And we also need to name it and label it and address it in the moment when it happens. Mm, yeah. So lots of things that we can do there in terms of educating um, and really keeping an eye at the school level, keeping an eye on what sorts of groups are developing, um, noticing those dynamics and working hard to to break that up. I think that's really helpful um, just knowing that at this stage it's, it's more beneficial to actually pair kids up together rather than letting them choose their own groups, that it works better to do it that way. Um, and then labeling it in the moment. So what what might that look like, the labeling it in the moment? Would that be another child, for example? Would that be teacher, parent? What would that look like? Well, I, th- I think we want to we want to make if everybody could do it, that would be a great thing, right? So we want to make sure that 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 children have the vocabulary, and that's just calling it out. Hey, that's not okay. You just called someone a name that's that's wrong and hurtful. And I think when when we're calling things out, we're, we're training kids to call things out. We want them to identify the behavior and talk about impact. Yes. Because kids respond to moral 
kind of transgressions. That's the most likely when they're most likely to intervene is it's when it isn't right. It's wrong. I had to write them wrong. That's one of the main reasons kids tell us they intervene. And so at labeling something as a moral transgression is a very effective kind of technique for, for kids to use with kids. Now, adults, we have to be a bit more careful because we don't want to shame children in that moment. Um, so we might, uh, you know, have a chat with the child who's perpetrated it and have them make amends. And that through that amends, they might talk about how to the class about how what it feels like when when to be called a name um, that's hurtful and, and what you can do to repair that. Um, and, you know, how we should be talking to one another and what how we need to work with our emotions in the heat of things um, when we're feeling uh, that we got a lot going on and, and we impulsively call out people and these different names. So I think it's, it's, we have to think really carefully and it's our intervention is going to depend a little bit on the, on the child. Um, and especially with adults intervening with children, we want, the first thing is we do not want to shame the child who's perpetrating. Um, we actually want to be educated if we want them to have other strategies. So we might say, you know what, Wendy, it feels like you're really overwhelmed maybe you need to take a moment and sit down and think about how we can, uh, how you can engage again in a respectful, caring way. So we're still addressing the transgression, but we're not shaming that child. Yeah, I like that. So really helping them develop empathy for the other child in that experience, getting them to kind of hop over into the other child's shoes and think about what that might feel like. And also giving them the opportunity, whether through role play or in real life, to try again, right? What what might we do differently? Um, because we know that tends to become more solidified when they're able to practice. Yeah, and, and that's a really important point. And, and I think the other piece that I think is important to just highlight here is that kids are more likely, if we address it in the moment, they're more likely to remember it. Yes. Um, if we give them a strategy, they're more likely to implement it. Um, and so it's really important to address it in the moment and give them a strategy. And the, the other piece I always like to tell parents, and usually it comes up around cyberbullying, but you know, like, you know, parents first reaction is, you know, to, to punish or maybe to take away uh, the child's phone or, or whatever. And I always say, you know, that what's the child learning in that moment? The child's learning that, you know, when I use my power, things are taken away from me versus what do we want the child to learn? Like we would never take it. If a child wasn't doing well in math, we would never take away their math book. What would we do? We'd spend extra time with them, supporting them, learning how to do those multiplication tables and practicing them and practicing them and practicing them, you know, and, and, and highlighting moments when we should, where, where math is helpful. Well, that's the same kind of approach we need to take as adults in children's life in addressing these social transgressions and in addressing bullying. We want to make sure that we're not punishing, doesn't work. We want to make sure that we're giving them the skills that they need to be successful the next time they catch themselves in that moment. That's so helpful. So that support and education as opposed to taking a punitive approach, it tends to go much farther. Now, how can we support individuals who are victimized by racial bullying? So that's happening, you know, we're in the moment again. How do we support those individuals? The most important thing that we can do is, you know, we have, we have to have a, a, what, you know, a response that ensures that they're safe, mm. that they feel safe. How do we create a safe and caring environment for that child? Um, the second thing is that we, we have to um, provide them with an opportunity to talk about their experience, what it felt like, what it, how it impacted them and what they need. 
The third piece that we need to do is engage them again in a, in a healthy, positive, supportive relationship. The, the other thing that we need to do is let them know under very, very clearly that this is not their fault, that this is wrong. This should not have happened to them, that this is not about them, but this is about the, you know, like the other person's bias and the other person's stereotyping. And that for them, this is not something that they should be internalizing as about themselves. So we need to support that child and we need to reconnect them. And then we need to make sure that the person who's perpetrated it has done the repair. Yeah. If they're up to receiving the repair, that repair could be either through a note or it could be one-on-one. Whatever that person who's been victimized is ready to to accept. That's helpful to have that point too, right? It's it's also dependent on what, or it is entirely dependent on what their needs are, what they're willing to accept. Um, and I know one of your PhD students, Samuel Kim, did some work in this area. He has a really great webinar on YouTube that talks about how to prevent racial bullying. So for anyone who's looking for more information on this, that's a really, really helpful resource. Now, even though adult involvement is really important in the prevention or interruption of bullying, you've talked a little bit about how kids and teens can also play a role. Um, So what are some other things that they can do when they either experience bullying or when they see another individual experiencing bullying? Yeah, you know, I I like to remind parents that we all have a job to educate our, our, our children and our youth to take responsibility for bullying when it happens. Because in over 85% of the episodes, peers are present. Peers are highly effective when they intervene. It stops every second episode. It stops within 10 seconds. So we want to make sure that we give all students the skills and the techniques that they need to intervene. Um, And and what does that mean? Like that, that they can intervene in a way that fits their style and maybe fits their status. So that could be maybe walking away and getting adult help. That could be if they have the confidence and the status in the peer group, that could be calling out bullying when it happens. Hey, Wendy, that's not okay. The the behavior you're doing, that's hurtful. That could be uh, distracting and, and asking the child who's being victimized to come and join them and do something else. That is removing that child from the intervention. That could be after they've witnessed it and seen it, that could be going up and verbally saying, you know what, I saw that and I, I didn't feel that I could step in, but I want you to know it's wrong and I stand with you. So the kids can intervene in a whole bunch of different ways. They can comfort, they can problem solve, you know, they can actively intervene um, and support. Um, And we have to give them those strategies, but they have to do it in a way that's safe for them. And that reflects who they are. Um, And, you know, I always say safety first. So if you don't feel safe intervening in the moment, then you can always do something later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, offering those different types of strategies, depending on their comfort level and their safety in that moment is very helpful. And I think it gives another um, avenue to explore when we're talking about opening up these conversations and ways to support kids. That's another angle right is talking about well if you see this happening to somebody else here are some things that you can do um, and providing lots of different strategies that they can use depending on how comfortable they feel now from what you found in the research does there tend to be a lot of impact on the kids who step in what happens to those kiddos yeah that's really interesting and we've done some work looking at what happens in the brain so Uh, We know when when kids who experience uh, victimization, what happens in an area in the brain called the anterior cingular cortex, that's this area that's associated with physical pain, 
Well, you know what? When you get bullied, that same area in the brain lights up. That is blood flows to that area. So in other words, you respond. If you're being victimized, you respond the same way that you do when you're, 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 um, when you're bullied. What we see in kids who defend, when they see bullying happen, they respond in the same way. They respond just in the anterior cingulate cortex. They, they respond in, as if their brain is in pain when they witness it for kids who defend. And what's interesting is we can actually follow that blood flow and see what happens. And the next area that gets lit up in kids who defend is the area associated with empathy. So they feel, so they, they experience the pain, they feel deep empathy. And then you know what happens? The next area that gets lit up is the area associated with motor control. They get ready for action. And so the brain parallels what we see. So kids who defend um, have deep empathy. They can perspective take. Um, and they can, and they can, and then they get ready to do something about it. So, uh, you know, it's important to know that all kids aren't made for defending. There are, you know, like that for some kids, there are costs associated with defending. So for example, if you're a child who has your own problems in the peer group, probably not a good idea for you to defend in the moment. You can defend by reporting, you can defend by comforting, but not in the moment. We find that kids who have high status are the most successful when they defend and are the most likely not to experience negative repercussions from doing that defending. So really think carefully about, you know, what's the best way for you to defend and how to defend. But all but the key thing to promote in our children and in education is empathy. So we can understand and put ourselves in the in the shoes of the child who's being victimized. What interesting research. Oh my goodness, that's very interesting. Um, are there things that teachers and other school staff can do when they receive reports of bullying? Um, any specific strategies for our teachers listening? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I want to say is, you know, we can all do something. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes doing something is about listening and hearing and validating. You know, that sounds really hard. You know, sometimes teachers say, you know, I find it challenging because I didn't see it happen. I don't know if it really was happening. It's been an ongoing challenging dynamic. That all may be true, but that doesn't mean we can't sit with that child and hear their story and say, wow, that sounds really hard. That sounds like a difficult situation. You know, what do you want me to do to support you? You know, and so, you know, sometimes you can, you, 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 you know, like teachers have to follow guidelines that are clear in their schools. But if you can't feel like you can't identify whether it was bullying or not, you can always listen and you can always support that child. And then you can always monitor their interactions to make sure that they're okay. But the most important thing is be there, listen, be empathetic and hear their story. Giving them a safe spot um, to express their feelings about it. I think that's a very helpful point in what you've talked about, just the importance of really validating and understanding and listening and providing that emotional support as a first step, regardless of what happens afterward. And that's true for friends, for parents, for teachers, for aunts and uncles, all of these other um, adults and support people in our lives. Now, we like to conclude our episodes um, with three key takeaways for our listeners. And I realize that we've covered so much, it might be difficult to summarize everything, but would you be able to provide our listeners with three key points that you think would be helpful for them to remember? So I'm going to say my three key points are everybody has a role to play into preventing bullying, you know, and then here's my breakdown of the three points. 
you know, adults and parents need to be aware of their children's interactions and who their friends are, monitor them and support them with empathy and kindness and unconditional listening if they report something gone wrong. And they also need to empower kids and support kids in developing the healthy relationships in their home. The last point is for peers. Peers are really incredibly important in intervening. We can all support kids who have been victimized. We can all send, say something kind. We can all connect with them after a victimization experience. We can report it when it happens. So peers have a significant role to play and adults need to empower peers and, and other children because they see it happening and they know it's happening and they can do something about it that's gonna make it better. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I just had an image pop into my mind as you were talking about, you know, a child who's been bullied kind of walking off from the experience on their own um, versus a child who's walking away with other people running up and saying, you know, that wasn't nice what this person did. And I'm sorry that happened to you. And that wasn't okay. Just how different it would feel walking away from the bullying incident. This has been such an interesting and helpful discussion. Dr. Wendy Craig, thank you for joining me today and for sharing such great information with our listeners. And I also wanted to quickly express just how grateful I am to have access to the concrete and evidence-based information that PrevNet puts out. And you do it in such a digestible way. Like it's really, really user-friendly, um, but it's also been an invaluable resource for those of us who work in clinical practice, as well as for teachers and families. So thank you for all that your team does. And thank you for joining me today. Thank you.